So we just celebrated Christmas on Monday, and so soon after Christmas, that part of the gospel message is still in our minds, and so it seemed appropriate to go back to Psalm 89, which we sang from, I believe, as well on Monday, or maybe it was that Sunday, and um, to spend a bit more time with this psalm as we reflect on the gospel. And um, it also fit well with um, the Lord's Day 52, which we hope to cover this afternoon. So we're going to divide the psalm into two parts. And we'll deal especially with verses um, 30 to 37 this morning. And then with other themes in the psalm this afternoon. So let's read Psalm 89. We're going to read the verses 1 through 37. And our text will be the verses 30 to 37. I must kill of Ethan the Ezraite. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him? O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging of the sea, and when its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Herman joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm, strong is your hand, high your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exalt in your name all the day and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord, our King to the Holy One of Israel. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. 
My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. And here begins our text. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with a rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever heard a tune that you recognized and you tried to sing along but you couldn't remember all the words? Sometimes faith works that way as well. You come across certain passages in the Bible or you hear a sermon or something like that and you pick up the general gist, but you can't quite remember all the words. Words like covenant or promise or steadfast love. It's these theological concepts that you recognize, but you don't always put them in the right order. And today's psalm might work that way for you as well. Maybe you read it and it seemed sort of familiar like so many of these psalms do. And when something seems familiar, we tend to tune out, don't we? But if you tune out, you will never learn the words. And if you don't learn the words, you'll find that you never really understand the consequences of what the psalm is saying. As a result, you miss out on some really foundational things that the Bible is trying to teach us. And then faith doesn't seem quite so secure anymore. And over time, you begin looking elsewhere for some, something to hold on to, some kind of affirmation and security, when really... That should be found in the scriptures. And maybe we even did that this past year. If so, our text this morning is an opportunity to go back to the foundational matters of our faith. That being that God's promise to David's offspring gives us eternal security. And we'll see that that means security when we violate his statutes. And security because he will not violate his covenant. So, in our text, God quotes, or the psalmist quotes from God's promise. He's actually referring to an event that is ascribed for us in uh, the second chapter of Samuel, um, the second book of Samuel, chapter 7. Here, David said that he wanted to build a house for God, and then God comes to the prophet Nathan at night, and he gives him a message to bring back to David, and he says, 
When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So this promise is not a promise just for David as an individual. This was part of God's work in history to prepare for the coming of the Messiah. And that history, of course, as you know, began already after the fall into sin. Sin separates us from God, and God's commitment to us is that He promised to bring a Messiah into the world to break the power of evil, to restore that relationship between sinners and Himself. And God, if you read the Bible, repeats that promise to different people at different times. And every time that He um, repeats it, He makes it more specific. For example, He promised to Abraham that all nations would be blessed through Him. That was Genesis 12. And that's a very wide promise. And then the promise we see reflected in our text narrows it down to one person. That person will be a king who will reign forever. And he says in verse 36, His offspring shall endure forever. His throne, the offspring of David and the throne of David, His throne as long as the sun before me. So this prophecy in our text clearly points to Christ. It has to point to Christ. Apart from him, how could this throne last forever? Wouldn't make any sense. No merely human ruler has an everlasting throne. And of course, it is true that in the immediate context it was fulfilled with King Solomon. But Solomon's throne didn't last forever. Verse 30 of our text says, If his children forsake my law, God already knew that they would. There was no if there. And the promise still would be carried through David's line, but it would not depend on the kings who occupied David's throne. It couldn't depend on them because God knew ahead of time that they would fail. Yet he made his promise anyway, and that shows that his promise pointed to someone greater than David, greater than Solomon. It pointed to Christ himself. And there's a lot of encouragement in there for us as we reflect on our life in light of Scripture, because it means that the security of God's promises does not depend on us. When God made His promise to David, He didn't just do it for him. He did it for us as well. Through faith, we share in those same promises. Paul's letter to the Galatians teaches us that we are just as much Abraham's descendants through faith as David was. And you remember that from Galatians 3, verse 7? Hopefully we haven't forgotten yet. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Those of faith are the sons and the daughters of Abraham. So we are heirs of the same promise that God made to David and to his heirs. And God's promises come to us in the context of his relationship with us. The Bible calls that relationship the covenant. The covenant is a relationship characterized by promise and by obligation. And the essence of the promise is that God will be God to us and to our descendants after us, and that He calls us to live for Him. And the descendants, the, the text assumes that the descendants are part of this promise. Right? It doesn't just talk about David, it goes on to talk about his children. Verse 30, if his children forsake my law, and so on. 
And so that assumes that the children are just as much a part of this promise as David is. But then that word if in verse 30. If. What if we sin? If his children forsake my law. What if they do? There is no if there. The if is not hypothetical. It's a when. More of a when than an if. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my statutes, according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, there is no if. We do this every day. Consider for a moment what sort of a God it is against whom we sin. Look at the expanse of description, verses 6 through 11. God the incomparable, who in the skies can be compared to the Lord, who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. God is incomparable to anyone else. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. God is the one who upholds all things by his providence. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. So God not only upholds, well, God upholds all things because he created all things. You consider his power, consider his grace. How can it be that this God is disobeyed by anyone? And yet he is all the time. Look at the different characterizations of sin, verses 30 to 32. It's described as forsaking his law, not walking according to his rules, violating his statutes, not keeping his commandments, transgression, iniquity. Six words that describe the different aspects of sin. God's rule, is, God's laws, his teachings that he reveals for us to follow, the, the Torah. His rules are that by which he governs us. His statutes are, are his decrees. Then you get his commandments. And when we break that, the verdict over that is that it is transgression. And transgression is rebellion against God. And it is iniquity. They're iniquity with stripes. So it is iniquity. Iniquity is, is guilt. It's misdeeds that result in guilt which need to be punished. And so all of these, all the forms of sin, whatever way you want to categorize them, sins of omission, sins of commission, sins of not walking according to his rules, not keeping his commandments, violating his statutes, it's all sin. And no matter how you, how you slice it, we've all been tainted by this, by these things in this past year, even this past week. Maybe this past day, and it's only just begun. And yet the text does not call us to meditate on our sins. It doesn't do that. It points us back to the promise. It points us back to God's covenant. It says all of these things might be true. They will all happen. But, but that big but, the whole gospel in one word, Verse 33 points us back to God's promise to David's offspring. 
And so what this means for us today is that God is saying to us that there is no sin, no transgression which can erase God's covenant promises for us. No matter what you did this past year, God's promise will outlast it. As one writer put it, there is nothing in our history that God has not met in the covenant with Christ. If you are in union with Christ and a partaker of the covenant, your case is met in every conceivable emergency. Nothing can befall you which is not contemplated. Nothing which God has not provided for. And so, God's promise to David's offspring gives us eternal security. The security comes from knowing that God is sovereign. We cannot add to the covenant promises and we cannot take away from them either. If we could, we would have sovereignty over God. And that would clash with everything that the first half of the psalm teaches us about God. God is sovereign. God's covenant promises are an expression of His sovereignty over our lives, and therefore they are immutable. God will not concede His sovereignty to us. And here we touch on the problem that all other religions have, which is that they all, in one way or another, put an emphasis on our actions as the deciding factor. In that sense, they do not reckon with the absolute holiness of God, because God's holiness is His absolute separation from all created things and His consequent absolute independence, in other words, His sovereignty. He says in verse 35, Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. God has sworn by his holiness. What else could he swear by? And surely if it depends on God's oath, it cannot depend on us. God's promise means that we have security. We confess in Article 27 of the Belgian Confession that Christ is a king who cannot be without subjects. Therefore, the church has always existed, and it will always exist. The kingship of Christ does not depend on our obedience. And that is why we have security even when we fall into sin. Even when, as the text we puts it, we violate His statutes. To violate means to ignore God's law, to actively despise it. But you should not misunderstand. Some people might ask, does this mean that we can sin and get away with it? Verse 32 says, no, no. It says, I will punish their transgression with a rod and their iniquity with stripes. In other words, sin always comes with consequences. God does not take revenge on his children who live in communion with him. In the words of Psalm 103, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities, but he does chastise us. He does discipline us. He will visit the consequences of our sins on us. He will make it very painful for us to disobey him because he hates sin too much to ignore it. And he loves his people too much to ignore them. So, dear brothers and sisters, have we seen God's chastising hand in our lives this past year? Have we thought back over the year in those terms? And don't misunderstand, please. In no way is this text suggesting that all suffering that we experience can be 
directly linked back to our own wrongdoings. Else you end up where the disciples did. Who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. That's not how that works. But the text is calling us to think back over this year from its perspective and to ask ourselves, was there ever any time this past year when we experienced difficulties that could be linked to sin on our part? We should not be too quick to say no. Maybe God disciplined us through our circumstances. Maybe we experienced tremendous conflict in relationships that would have been less if we would have backed off. Maybe there were lifestyle choices that had certain consequences. Maybe there were other things that brought about an awareness of our own sins and shortcomings in our lives. Maybe a a moment, an interaction, a realization, a text that brought it all to mind. What are you going to do with that? Will Will we see that? Will we accept that? Or will we buck up against it? Are we in denial? Are we diverting attention? Are we playing games with ourselves? Have we not yet understood that God only ever disciplines those whom He loves? The writer of the letter to the Hebrews touches on that in chapter 12 of his letter. Quoting from the Old Testament, he says, My son, do not lightly regard the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And he goes on to say, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God disciplines us for our good. His discipline is not meant to make us doubt his promise. And if we doubt, it's because we lost sight of Christ. God's promise to David's offspring gives us eternal security. Also, when we violate his statutes. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 32, Paul reminds us that we are, when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the Lord, with the world. When we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. God does this to turn our hearts to him so that he will not condemn us for our lack of faith. And so discipline, as we've also experienced it this past year, is actually part of God's undeserved favor in our lives. It's part of His grace, just as much as forgiveness is. If we feel overwhelmed by our sins and their consequences, it's only so that we can be pointed back to God. God's promise to David's offspring, gives us eternal security, and he calls us to respond in faith to that promise. God's covenant promise always comes first. The covenant is not conditional in, that, in the sense that first you believe and only then does God make his covenant with you when you have attained to the right level of faith. No, already in verse 30, God makes a promise regarding children even who have not yet been born. 
God's covenant came first for the children. It's promised even to those who are not yet born. If his children forsake my law, and so on, and he already has them in mind. Everything depends on him, but it does demand the response of faith. And don't fall into the Arminian trap and believe that faith is our contribution. Even faith is a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. As it says in Ephesians 2 verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the work of God. And in Philippians 1 verse 29, it says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. It has been granted to you to believe in Christ. Scripture is quite clear on this. It is granted to you. But the way that God calls us to faith is in, within the context of the covenant promises. Sometimes church members, maybe even young church members, think they will be okay simply because they belong. They think they sort of know the tune so they can mumble the words if they forget. Yes, you do belong in a legal sense. You are a recipient of baptism. You're a recipient of all of God's promises. These are tremendous privileges. There was a tremendous privilege for you to be baptized. Do not despise your baptism. You are children of the promise. God's word came first to you. But you need to respond to that word in faith. Every covenant child as it grows, needs to be born again. Now, perhaps you are surprised to learn that covenant children need to be born again. You shouldn't be, though. Scripture is very clear on that. In John chapter 3, our Lord Jesus was speaking to one of God's covenant people. His name was Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a model son of the covenant Think about this, a man deeply knowledgeable about the Scriptures, religiously sensitive, very serious about his faith. If he'd been a member here in Mundajang, we would have voted him into consistory in November. We would have. And yet Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Being born again is something that God does in you. What does it mean to be born again? Simply put, it means to become spiritually alive. It means that you are a new creation. It means that you not only know about God, but that you know God, that you live in communion with Him. It means that the spiritual life of God's Son flows through you, the branch. It means that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And that love for God is the whole purpose of the covenant. It's not, the covenant was never meant to only be a purely legal arrangement. It is the foundation of our relationship with God. But the covenant, the covenant is where that relationship happens. And that's why no one should ever despise the covenant promises. No one should ever downplay God's covenant promise and put the emphasis on their personal experience instead. Because we receive everything through the covenant. Outside of the covenant, there is no security whatsoever. No foundation. 
But in the covenant, we experience the fulfillment of God's promise that He, the triune God, will be our God. That promise was unfolded for us in our baptism as it is carried out by each person in the Trinity. And it's important for us to understand this, but especially important for the youth. Because some of you think you've heard this song before. You think you know the words, but you're not going to sing along anyway because it's the same song that your parents sing. Don't do that. Make it your own. The call is on each of us to respond in faith to that promise, including how it is revealed to us this morning in, the, in this text. That means that we trust that God's promise to David's offspring gives us eternal security, even when we violate His statutes, because He will not violate His covenant. And that's the second point we're going to pay attention to. Why will God not violate His covenant? Because ultimately the covenant is not fulfilled in us. It is fulfilled in Christ. Christ is the true anointed, the true Messiah. The psalm refers to God's anointed. That's actually what the word Messiah means. It means to be anointed. The word Christ and Messiah mean the same thing. And so, as Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20, all the promises of God, including these promises, Find their yes in Him. And Scripture is very clear about this idea that, that this covenant terminates in Christ. It's fulfilled in Christ, has its end in Christ. Paul writes about that in Galatians 3 verse 16 when he says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is the Christ. So the line of the promise that starts in Genesis narrows in Abraham and narrows even more in David, ultimately terminates in Jesus. And that tells us what sort of a relationship the Father has with His anointed one, with Christ. A relationship of steadfast, unbreakable, unchangeable, eternal love. And because we belong to Christ, He has that same unconditional steadfast covenant love for us. It does not depend on us. We receive that love because we are one with Christ. That is the security of the promises. This love is for Christ because of who Christ is. Christ, the ultimate believer, as a man, the one who was in God's covenant as a true human being who experienced full communion of life with his Father, who was filled with the Spirit, the one who upholds the covenant, the one in whom we are reckoned through faith. Believers and their children, Jesus is the ultimate heir of all of these promises. And so all those who belong to Christ inherit these promises with Him. Ephesians 1 verse 11 says, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. In Him we have obtained an inheritance. Christ is a one in whom we have the inheritance. Christ is the one through whom we have the security. In fact, God is so set on convincing our stubborn and unbelieving hearts of this that He even swore an oath. So we have, as Hebrews puts it, in relation to His promise to Abraham, two reasons to believe. His promise, which in and of itself should be enough, and His oath. 
Hebrews 6, verse 17 to 18 says, When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that's us, the unchangeable character of his purpose. More convincingly, not because he was unclear in what he said, but because we are dull, stubborn, slow of heart to understand. Always coming up with our yes, but. Yes, but. Yes, but. Well, in verse 35 to 37, he also swears an oath by his own holiness. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness... I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. He swore by his holiness. His holiness is his utter separation from all things. The one characteristic that in a sense is connected to all the other ones. It means he's not able to be influenced by anything else whether that be our sins or by our good intentions. Because God is separate. He is not influenced by the things that influence us. We are embodied creatures who live in this world, and we are influenced by all sorts of things. God is holy. He does not let himself be guided or influenced by anyone. Not even our good intentions. They make no difference. But if this is so, then what about those who fall away? What about the if? If his children forsake my law and so on. It's one thing if a covenant child strays and comes back, but what about those who stray and never come back? Those who fall away. Well, Paul writes about that in Romans 9 verse 6. He says, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Some will fall away from the faith. Maybe you know some of them. Probably most of us beyond a certain age know someone who left their faith. Maybe they never had it to begin with. Does that mean that God violated his covenant with him? And the answer was no. No, God did not because a promise is not the same thing as a prediction. God is not predicting that everybody who hears these words will believe. Instead, he's promising that he will never withdraw his love from Christ and therefore, he will never withdraw his love from all who receive his promises and who respond to those promises in faith. So this is a call to find our security in Christ. And it is therefore by implication a true and certain promise that all who refuse to do so will ultimately be destroyed. Dear brothers and sisters, we should not think that God's covenant is an arrangement that we can take or leave as we see fit. It is not a choice between receiving God's covenant promises or going our own way undisturbed, as so many people unconsciously think. That's not how that works. Instead, God calls us to find our security in Christ, and He promises that all those who refuse to do so will meet with true and certain destruction. We find that reflected in another royal psalm, Psalm 2, verse 12. 
It says, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So we are to receive God's promises on his terms. And so often it happens that Christians, also Reformed Christians, think they will improve themselves first and get serious with their faith later. That's not true faith because it means that you're still trying to maintain your end of the covenant on your own terms. We bring in our own conditions, and a lot of our good intentions fall into this category. You know what? They're probably well-meant, our good intentions, but they still express an underlying stubbornness. I have to clean myself up, and we will never find true security in that. When we realize that God's promise to David gives us eternal security, when we really understand that, then we have peace. A lot of people don't have peace in their lives. What someone who understands and believes these things does. We feel calm and happy. Do you have that calmness and happiness as you look back on this past year? Do you feel happy that you got to live another year in the light of God's promises? Whatever else 2023 held for you, those 365 days in the light of God's promises the light that never fades. That's quite something, isn't it? There's this old hymn called Trust and Obey. Maybe the children know it. When we walk with the Lord in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way. Did you walk in the light of glory this past year? Maybe you didn't. Maybe this past year was marked by struggle, regret, Maybe you experience all sorts of difficulties in your walk of faith. Remember then God's word to you. God's word to you. I will not remove my, from you my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went from my lips. God's promise to you. Believe his promise. And you will have security in this year and the year to come. Amen.